Yeah, oh sure, is the response I get from the crowd. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22 this morning, as we close in on the end of this book that we've been going through together for some time now. We have now ventured into a new portion of this book. They have, the Israelites have crossed the Jordan River, they have gone through conquest, uh, major things like Jericho, the five kings at Gibeon of the conquest of the north. Now, and they have settled the land, they've divided the land among the tribes, they have found a home there, and now we come to this last portion of the book, these last three chapters that really deal with, now what? God has been so incredibly faithful to Israel from leading them out of slavery in Egypt across the desert, across the Jordan, giving them this land, settling them in the land. God has been so good to them, so faithful to them. Now the question is, what will be their response? And that's really what these last three chapters or so of Joshua look at. Starting with our passage this morning in Joshua chapter 22. This is a rather long passage, and so um, if, if you're not able to stand through the whole thing, that's completely understandable. But if you would, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning, as we read the entirety of chapter 22 this morning. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice. In all that I have commanded you, you have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he has promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you and to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now to one, the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth, with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoils of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses." And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. 
and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against God of Israel in turning away this day from the following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which every even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? And for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you must too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon the whole congregation of Israel? And did not perish, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity? Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said to answer the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from the following of the Lord. Or if we did so to, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in a time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You, people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might take, make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in a time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us, our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offering or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest at and the tri chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest and the chief, returned from the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God, let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we cannot thank you enough. 
We thank you that you use us in your kingdom. We thank you that you use us in your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you have made us ambassadors to spread the news of your great glory and of your great gospel. Father, we thank you that we experience times of great joy and celebration over your blessing and over our obedience. And Father, we thank you that that we have family, a church family that cares for us, that watches out for us. Father, we pray this morning Lord, that as we remember all these things that you have done for us, of all the ways that you have been faithful to us, Lord, that we would be passionate about the things that you are passionate about. That we would love holiness the way you love holiness. Father, that we would care for our brother in Christ. Father, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Rather long passage, but a very meaningful passage. You have heard me say this several times over the last almost six years now. But this has become one of my favorites. As I have been able to study this passage and and been able to really grab hold of it this week, I, I have fallen in love with it and what it communicates. It's like a diamond that you pick up and you turn and you see different parts and different facets of it. And really, that's the beauty of the Word of God. Many of us have probably read over this passage before, but you get to this point in Joshua, and you're just trying to get to Judges. So you read a little quicker, and maybe you miss kind of some of what's going on here. It's not until we sit with the Word of God and we meditate upon it that we begin to see some of the beauty of it, some of the challenge of it. And certainly that is the case with this passage in Joshua. The passage opens on quite the good note. It it opens on a really incredible message of hope and excitement. After all, as we've said, that we've gotten to this point in the book of Joshua, the battles are over and they're settling into their homes. It's a job completed in many ways. A job well done. It's a job that is worthy of being celebrated. And Joshua calls together the tribes... And ask them, tells them, hey, it's time for you to go home. They had obeyed everything that they had been given. If you go back to Numbers 32, which I'm not going to ask you to this morning, but if you go back to Numbers 32 or you go back to Joshua chapter 1, verse 10, what you're going to see there is the introduction to what we have in Joshua 22. Reuben and Gad and this half-tribe of Manasseh, they find the land on the east side of the Jordan to be a good place to raise their livestock. And so they come to Moses and they say, hey, we want to live here. We know that the promised land is over there, but we have a desire for this place. And at first, Moses is like, you are asking a dangerous question. God has brought you all this way, and he has promised you this land, and now you are asking for something different. But as they seek the Lord's will, the Lord says, that's fine, they can settle here. But there's an agreement that's made. And the agreement is, is that Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh can settle on the east, but they are not going to sit behind while the rest of Israel goes to war. 
They're going to take their men of valor, the men that are old enough to go to war, they're going to take them and they're going to go with Israel into the promised land to help with the conquest. And now that that's over, now that the Israelites are settling into their homes, they're beginning to tend to their fields, they're having their livestock in their pasture, they're living in the homes that they had not built. Now Joshua pulls these tribes together and says it's time to go home. He commends them. He says, you've obeyed everything. You have fulfilled your promise. You have done well. He said he blesses them. He says, you, not only have you done well, but you have my blessing to go home. And not only do you have my blessing, but God's blessing is evident as well. He, he sends them home. And in the second part of that, that first section, he says that they have been blessed with gold and silver and bronze and iron and clothing and, and livestock and all of these other things. He says, you not only see my blessing, but you can see God's blessing on your life because of your obedience. And he challenges, but he gives them a challenge as well. He gives them a challenge as well. It's not a challenge born out of, out of judgment. It's not a challenge born out of condemnation. It is simply a challenge born out of concern for these people. He says, when you go home, don't forget God. When you go home, don't forget what he has accomplished in your life. Don't forget the commands that he has given you and how to live and how to worship him. You see, Joshua understands that while, we, while someone is at war, it's easy to focus on the mission. When things are difficult, it's easy to have a kind of a tunnel vision to say, this is what needs to get accomplished and this is what we're going to do. But when things go back to normal, quote unquote, then it becomes difficult. Then our, our attention gets kind of spread out and we begin to worry about this thing over here and this thing over here and we begin to forget about what the mission is what God has given us to do and how we are to live. And so he just, he simply reminds them, hey, you're going home, but don't forget what you've learned. This should be a great time of celebration. Imagine what these guys are thinking. Most commentators, we talked about this a little bit in the past, but most commentators kind of had a consensus that it has been seven years since the time that they crossed the Jordan until now. Some of these men who are going home haven't seen their families in seven years. Their newborns are now seven-year-olds. Like, I can't imagine missing these first years of formation. There are so many incredible things that she has, that she has done accomplished, like she's built a pyramid. Um, but there's so many things that she's done in these first few years. I can't imagine missing that. And their seven-year-olds that they left are now 14, and their 14-year-olds are now 20 in their early 20s. They're young men on their own right. They may have families. They've missed so much. And now Joshua says, boys, it's time to go home. The mission is complete. When they went back to their tents, I'm sure it was not a somber moment. There was some partying going on. There was some excitement happening. We're going home. Send the messengers ahead of us. We are coming. It was a time of excitement. And not just for Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, but can you imagine this moment for the rest of the tribe of Israel to know the mission is complete, so much so that we can send these guys home. 
they're excited as well. It's a monumental moment in the nation of Israel. The promises that God had given them of a home and of a, a nation are coming to completion, coming to fulfillment. And yet what we find, what we find so true so many times in our life is in the greatest moments of excitement and celebration, in the greatest moments of our obedience to the Lord and enjoying His blessing and His joy, it's in those moments that so often the enemy Satan wants to sneak in and steal that. That so often the enemy wants to sneak in and create a distraction and steal that joy, steal that excitement, steal that fervor for the Lord. Certainly that's what we see here in Joshua. We see them go home probably the next morning or maybe a couple of days later as they gathered everything together. They go home and they get to the banks of the Jordan and they make a decision. The leaders of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh make a decision and they decide we're going to build an altar. And it's not just some little monument, little stone, couple stones stacked on top of them. Apparently, it was of impressive size. Many scholars agree that it probably meant that you could see it from both sides of the river. Because it was to be a testament to both of the nation of Israel and to these three tribes. And they say, we're going to build this altar. It's going to be a memorial. And we get, at the end of the chapter, we understand why they do this. It's so that... The two, there will always be something to remind all of the tribes that, hey, we're in this together. We're worshiping together. So why then, if they had such good intentions, why is this such a big deal? Turn with me to Deuteronomy. You won't have to turn far. Deuteronomy, just before Joshua. We're going to be looking at chapter 12. Going to see why this is such a big deal. Why does Israel react the way that they do to this monument that Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh have built? Chapter 12, looking at verse 13. That you do not offer burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. So in Deuteronomy, God is speaking through Moses, and he makes it very clear. You are to offer your burnt offerings in one place and in one place only. We worship one God, and we offer our offerings in one place. Okay, make that connection. One God, one place of offerings. Why, does, why is this important? Well, Couple, a few reasons, starting with probably the least important. Some of these offerings, the way that they were offered and the way that the sacrifice took place were meant to provide for the priest. So by if you chose not to offer in that location at that time, you were literally taking food off of their table. And so that was part of the reason, not the most important reason, but certainly a practical part of it. The second was that there were prescribed ways for performing the sacrifice. There were detailed instructions of what could be sacrificed, when it could be sacrificed, how it was to be sacrificed. 
And by having one location that the head priest could monitor, it was meant to protect Israel from doing it the wrong way. So that's the second part of it. The third part was that Israel was always meant to be different than the nations that surrounded them. The nations that they had just conquered had altars everywhere. They had altars on the mountains and the high places that were to the gods of the sun and the moon and other gods. They had altars by the rivers and the streams. They had altars in fields. They had altars to trees. They had altars everywhere. And they would offer not just animals, but at times they would even offer children on these things. They, they had a plethora of gods and a plethora of altars. And God said, not you. You're not going to look like them. You're not going to act like them. You have one God, and you have one place to make sacrifices. You have one place to do burnt offerings. He says, you're not going to be like them. And honestly, this is a precursor to what we see in Judges. Israel doesn't tear down all of those altars of the people that were before them. Israel begins to build altars in places they're not supposed to. And the worship of God is diluted, and it eventually, in many cases, is abandoned. So this is a big deal. Because Israel sees this altar as a threat to the worship of God. Because if you choose to worship God the way you want to and not the way God tells us to, then you might as well not worship him at all. You're not following him. And so Israel freaks out. They freak out. They gather together. The rest of the tribes get together at Shiloh where the tabernacle was. They gather together and they say, we're going to make war on these people. They are zealous in their response. They are passionate in their response. This cannot stand. This cannot be let go. And so they gather together and they're, they're ready to march. It would be easy for us as we read the whole chapter, as we read the whole chapter, it would be easy for us to look back and say, wow, they overreacted a little bit, right? We read the whole chapter and we have the benefit of hindsight and be able to say, Hey, they, they really overreacted. They're going to go to war over this altar that's just supposed to be a monument. It's not that big a deal. But remember, they don't know that information. All they know is that these three tribes have built an altar when God had specifically said, don't do that. And they remember, they remember the consequences of disobedience. You'll notice when they send the delegation Phineas and these other ten gentlemen to speak to these three tribes, what do they tell them? Do you not remember? Do you not remember what happened at Peor? Peor, by the way, was happened just, the incident at Peor happened just before they crossed the, the Jordan River. The people of Israel, specifically the men, had begun to have relationships with Moabite women, something that God had told them not to do, and because of those relationships, they begin to follow false gods. And God sends a plague to Israel that kills 24,000 people. The people of Israel say, we still haven't recovered from that. It's still a stain on our people. They say, don't you remember what happened to Achan? Like, 
you're sinning, but your sin's going to impact us. Don't you remember the story of Achan? Not that long ago, seven years ago, when he stole the gold from Jericho and he kept it for himself when he was told not to. And God not only punished Achan, but he punished all of us in defeat at the next battle. And people lost their lives because of this one man's sin. Don't you understand that if you do this, then God is going to judge all of us? No, their response is not an overreaction. It is a proper response to sin and the understanding of the destruction that sin can bring. Thankfully, though, in their response, they take one extra step. Thankfully, in their response, they don't just go to war, but rather they send that delegation. They choose Phineas, and they choose ten people, one man from each tribe, and they send them to these three tribes to talk it out, to say, what are you doing? What's going on? It's a good thing they do. Israel, here in our passage, they communicate, right? They begin to say, do you not know what you're doing, that you've rebelled against God? Haven't we had enough of this? Don't you remember Peor and Achan? They even offer them, I love this part, they say, is that land not good enough? Remember, you wanted that land, but now have you changed your mind? If you have, don't worry about it. Just come live with us. We'll, we'll redo the whole thing, and you can just live with us. Just don't do this. That right there tells me, these, these folks, they are not, they're not there to judge or condemn Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. They're there to make sure they don't make a big, big mistake. Because they're willing to say, we will give you whatever you want, just don't do this. So they communicate the problem. And praise the Lord that they do. Praise the Lord that they communicate. Because it gives Manasseh and Reuben and Gad an opportunity to explain. These three tribes in response, I love their, I love their initial comment. The mighty one, the God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. <laughs> They're like, don't shoot yet. God, God knows our intentions. God knows that we did not intend to rebel here. And they begin to explain, hey, this isn't, this isn't in rebellion. This isn't for us to, to try to sacrifice in another place. This is simply a monument. It's a reminder to us and to you and to the generations that come after us that we're all in this together, that we all serve the same God, that we all serve the Lord, that we all have made commitments to one another and to Him. Our intentions were good. Thank goodness that they communicated with one another. Thank goodness that Israel was able to say, hey, this we need to step in, this needs to stop, and to, have to start this discussion. Because there's two sides to communication problems, right? It's never one-sided with communication problems. Certainly Israel misunderstood what was going on, right? Israel misunderstood what the altar was for, they misunderstood what Manasseh and Reuben and Gad were trying to do. But at least they approached the situation. At least they said, hey, let, they opened dialogue. But Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, they had their own communication problems. Tell me if this sounds familiar. 
you want to do something good for someone, right? You want to do something good. You want to, you want to encourage them. You want to do whatever. And so you buy them a gift or you, try, you surprise them with some party or something like that. And when you finally get to that day and you hand them that gift or you have that surprise party for them, the reaction that you get is not the one you intended. Has that ever happened to you? Like you hand them this thing and they're like, and then you find out, oh, there's a history there. I have a good friend of mine named Kevin. He's no longer with us. But I can remember when, when his little girl was born. I, I gave nicknames to all the kids at Calvary. That was just kind of my thing. And I can remember when his little girl was born, I went to the hospital and I held her for the first time. I said, what's her name? I said, Sophie Ann McSmith. And I said, oh, how pretty. I said, Sam, Sophie Ann McSmith. Thinking that's a cute little nickname, Sam. And I watched Kevin turn beet red, angry. And he said, don't ever call her that again. And I'm like, okay. Remember that I'm holding your daughter when you decide to punch me. What I did not know was that he had dated a girl in high school named Sam. Let's say it did not end well. And I said, I talked to him later, I said, did you not think of this before you named your daughter? And he said, I never thought anyone would put the connection together and actually want to call her by her initials. I was like, sorry, bud. My intention was good, but there was history that I did not know. If I would have communicated that with him beforehand, maybe we could have saved ourselves some embarrassment. Reuben and Gad and Manasseh have the same thing. They want to do something good. They want to do something right, but they go to do it. And, but what it communicates is not good. What it communicates is way off base. If only they would have asked Joshua or Phineas or Eleazar beforehand and said, hey, we want to have this monument that represents peace between all of our peoples, that reminds us that we're all in this together. We want to build an altar. Man, those three guys could have said, uh, don't do that. that. That's not going to turn out the way you think. There's communication problems on both sides of this. But they do talk and they explain all of these things out and everyone walks away pleased. Phineas says, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because we ha you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Phineas walks away with all the leaders and says, oh man, we know that God is taking care of us even now because we didn't overreach in our zealous faith and you were protected from sin. He is gracious to us today. Thank the Lord. They walk to their, back to their homes and everything is better because they, they were faithful to pursue what they knew was wrong, but they were also faithful to communicate with one another. And because of that, because they were faithful to pursue what they knew was wrong and because they were faithful to communicate that, they were able to preserve the peace. They were able to prevent something worse. They were able to not give Satan a foothold into their relationship with one another and with the Lord. Oh, that we would be so zealous. 
problems are going to happen. We're people. We are sinners saved by grace, and we have not yet reached heaven. And problems, problems are going to happen. And oftentimes they happen at the worst possible moment. They happen in the height of our joy and our excitement. They happen when we should be celebrating and be thankful. And that is when problems often rear their head. And we should confront those problems. We are tempted as human beings to sweep things under the rug. To say there's no problem here, we're okay. We're tempted to pretend like it didn't happen. We're, we're tempted to pretend like it's not important. And when we do that, we forget the consequences of sin. We forget the consequences of some of these problems. We forget the lessons that we've learned in the past about what happens when we ignore these things. That they don't just go away. That instead they tend to fester until they explode into something much bigger. We forget what sin has done to us as human beings. It's bought, brought nothing but misery and pain and suffering and ultimately death. So yes, we should confront problems when we see them. But how do we do it without going to war? The Israelites' first, first inclination is, we got to go to war over this. Well, and it's understandable to a certain extent. They'd had seven years of nothing but. That's all that they knew to do. Thank goodness that they sent the delegation to talk. So how do we pursue with great zealousness and passion the things of the Lord? How do we sort out problems without going to war? Thank the Lord that he has given us his word. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're not going to be here long. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he tells them, this is what you do when there are problems. It says in chapter, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. A brother. You know, really, when we read this, we see Joshua play out, right? There was a problem that Israel saw with what Reuben and Gad and Manasseh had done. They saw an issue there, and they went, and they confronted the issue. They didn't turn their back on it. They didn't ignore it. They didn't in the end, overreact. They sent a delegation. They sent someone to say, this is a problem. We're concerned. Brothers and sisters, we have to be brave enough to engage. If we are to handle problems in a biblical manner, in a, in a faithful manner, in a graceful manner, then we have to be brave enough. We have to have the courage to engage others. Not to just sit back and twiddle our thumbs and worry. And yet our, our inclination, right, is to say, man, someone should really say something about that. Someone should really go do that. Friend, if, if you are sitting there and you're like, man, someone should really 
there, there's a problem. I see this other person. I see this, this individual that I care about, and I see things in their life that, that are not worthy of, of the Lord that are, are causing them to go down a, a difficult and a wrong path, and I'm concerned about them. Someone should really say something. Brother or sister, I hate to tell you, but you're the one that should say something. It's you. The Lord is laying it on your heart. Go talk to them. Now, we do it again in compassion and grace, but go talk to them. Say, I'm concerned about you. I, I love you. You've got to stop playing with fire. There's something better for you. We've got to be brave enough to engage. We've got to be zealous enough to follow up says, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. We have to be zealous enough to follow through. We have to be faithful enough to follow through. Here's the thing about Relationships. They get messy, they're hard, and they take time. I don't know about you, but when someone talks to me about something that's maybe screwed up in my life, I don't often hear them the first time. Most of the time, they have to come back. Because the first time, my heart's going to be a little hard, right? I've probably told you the story already, but... I can remember after I was in college and had a bad breakup, and I can remember a friend sitting me down, and I was upset, and he sat me down, and I'm expecting encouragement. And my friend looks across the table at me and says, what if you're just meant to be single? I've never wanted to hurt someone so much in my life. I was like, are you serious? Like, that's what you're going to say right now, right here? Really? heart was hard. I was looking for comfort and satisfaction in something other than the Lord, and that had been taken away from me, and I was still mourning that, and I wasn't thinking about the things of God. And here is a friend who's trying to tell me, hey, in in a not-so-graceful way, I'll admit, hey, maybe you're looking in the wrong area. And I was hard. And it wasn't until I had slept on it, and the next day I went back to him and I said, you know, maybe you're right. Will you pray with me? Talk to me more about this. Help me to get refocused on the right things. Help me to learn how to be content and satisfied with what the Lord's given me so that I may serve him better. Sometimes when we come to somebody the first time, they're not going to receive it super well. You have to be zealous enough, faithful enough, graceful enough, merciful enough, forgiving enough to go back and say, I still love you. We're still going to talk about this. Because I care. Israel did more than just talk about something. They did more than just gather together and say this is wrong. They went after the problem and they discussed it. All for the sake of restoration. Matthew says there that if you do this and the individual repents, then you have gained a brother. And really, you could say that at each level. It says, if if you could look at the next verse and say, take one or two others along with you, and if he repents then, then you have gained a brother. If he does not listen to them, 
go to the church, and if he repents then, then you've gained a brother. That's the whole point is restoration. And what we see in, in Joshua chapter 22 is the beauty of that outcome. They confront the problem. They go after it. They talk about it. They gather together. They listen to one another. And when they find that all has been resolved, there is restoration. Israel is stronger than what it was before. And they all, all, they all praise the Lord. They all turn their attention to his goodness. In the same way, if we will come to a brother or sister and say, I'm concerned, I'm worried. And if they will, you will have that conversation and find reconciliation, it will turn our attention back to those things that had us so excited, so joyful in the beginning. Here's the beautiful thing about this as well. And we're going to end with this. This is a picture of the gospel. We rebelled against God. The Bible tells us each and every one of us has sinned. That each and every one of us have done things that God told us not to do or not done things he told us to do. We have rebelled. We said we're going to go our own way. And we've rejected him. And God could have looked back at us and said, fine. Go your own way. Do your own thing. But instead, he communicated with us through his word, through his presence. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to confront us with the problem and then deal with it. And he did so on the cross and in his resurrection. And now he holds out a hand of relationship and says, come to me. Be forgiven. Know life and know it to its fullest if we will accept it. To have reconciliation, not with just another human being, but with the creator of all things and the lover of our souls. This morning, if you have never had that relationship with him, he extends that hand relationship to you this morning. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back forward. We're just going to have a time of response. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never had a relationship with Christ. This morning you can do that to pray to God and ask him to forgive you and then make a commitment to follow him the rest of your life and to know the joy and the excitement of your salvation. This morning maybe you're here and there's someone in this room that you need to forgive or that you need to seek forgiveness from. Maybe there's someone in this room that, that is going down a path or, or doing some things or maybe there's someone outside of this room that you're like, man, I need to have a conversation. It's not a conversation of condemnation. It's not a conversation of judgment. It's a conversation of concern and love and mercy. We can't sweep under the rug any longer for the sake of restoration, for the sake of their soul. To be brave enough to engage, to be zealous enough to follow through. Maybe that's on your heart this morning. You just ask the Lord, give me the courage to do that. To pray for them that they would accept this truth as you intend it. That they would hear your words the way that you desire them to. Maybe this morning there's just things in your own life that you need to ask forgiveness for and respond to. But let's respond as he leads. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we thank you, Lord, that you saw us as rebellious, and you did not leave us alone. 
Lord, that you saw us when we made poor decisions and that you, instead of turning your back on us and ignoring us or or casting judgment upon us, Lord, that you sent your son to die on the cross, that we may know forgiveness and that we may know life and know it abundantly. Father, we thank you that you have given us brothers and sisters and friends, Lord, who we enjoy life with and who we have great relationships with. And yet we also, Lord, understand that sometimes there's going to be problems. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to the best of our ability, know how to deal with those situations. And when the, if there's the moment arises that we would be brave enough, Lord, to, to go to them in love and in mercy the way that you have come to us and to just say, hey, I'm concerned. Father, I pray. I pray that we would seek reconciliation in all of our relationships, that we would seek you in all of our relationships, that we would be stronger as individuals and as a church for it. Father, I pray, lead us today. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. You can stand with us. You can go to the altar. You can go find someone for the morning this morning. Let us